Okay, so it looks like we have um, a lot of attendees. So we'll go ahead and make a start. Um, welcome everybody. Um, so my name is Dr. Miriam Tresh. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Psychological and Behavioral Sciences at the London School of Economics. Um, I'm a cognitive psychologist um, looking at the psychological impact and public perceptions of, of conflict in COVID in Libya. Um, and so I am delighted to be chairing this public event, which has been organized by the Middle East Center at the LSE. Um, and our speakers are going, going to be discussing Libya in 2020 with a focus on um, the region um, and its, uh, the proxy war in Libya and its importance to the region. So before I introduce our two great speakers that we have today, I'll just set out the, the running order for this event. So each of our two speakers um, will take turns to speak. They're going to speak for about 10 to 15 minutes. Um, we want to leave plenty of time for the Q&A session today. So we really encourage participation in this. So if you would like to ask one of our speakers a question, please do throughout the session, just post your questions in the Q&A box, which you can find at the bottom um, of your screen on the Zoom screen, you'll see a Q&A box, just post your question in there. Once our speakers have, have given uh, their presentations, then I will relay those questions, collate those and relay those to our speakers. Um, I also just want to, an important note that this event is recorded um, and is being streamed on Facebook as well to watch. So um, I'll go ahead then and introduce our speakers. Um, so our first speaker is Jalal Hashawi. He is a research fellow in the Conflict Research Unit in the Klingendale Institute. His work focuses on Libya. He's covering aspects such as the country's security landscape and political economy. Uh, Jalal holds a master's degree in geopolitics from Paris 8 University. Um, he is a doctoral researcher focused on the international dimension of the Libyan conflict. And he's a frequent commentator on Libya in international press. So he's published widely in various outlets, including Foreign Affairs, Lawfare, um, Middle East Eye and Small Arms Survey. And our second speaker is Elham Saudi. She is the co-founder and director of Lawyers for Justice in Libya. She's a solicitor with expertise in human rights and international humanitarian law. She has advised a number of Libyan, European and international bodies in relation to the Libya conflict. And she's also a visiting professor at the Helena Kennedy Center for International Justice and a former associate fellow in the International Law Program at Chatham House. So we're very grateful to have them here with us today to talk um, at this session on Libya's proxy war. Um, and so with kind of housekeeping and introductions sorted, as I said, do post your questions in the Q&A box um, and we'll, we'll go over those in the Q&A session. So with that, I'll pass on to our first speaker, Jalal. So Jalal, when you're ready, please. Thank you very much, Nadine. And uh, thank you to uh, the LSC uh, Middle East Center for this invitation. It's, uh, it's something that I'm very honored by. And uh, I'm, I'm very happy to, to be able to speak about Libya. I was going to organize my remarks today uh, in, in the form of uh, three groups of, of observations. I'm basically going to make three uh, basic arguments. The, the first one I'm going to concentrate on trying to convince you that uh, contrary to what you know, some headlines seem to indicate this year, uh, from a Libyan perspective, uh, that's basically the, the point of view that I will try to reconstruct uh, based on my research, is that nothing fundamentally new uh, or structurally new is happening this year. Um, and the second uh, group of remarks will have to do with the importance uh, 
of the ultra-local, which is uh, slightly paradoxical because, uh, as, as everybody knows, uh, the Libya conflict uh, stands out because of its internationalized or globalized nature as a civil war. And, and my third and final uh, group of remarks uh, will try to answer the question uh, of, of why uh, I believe that the civil war of Libya is far from over, unfortunately. And then I will try to finish basically by, and by trying to determine whether or not this uh, proxy war or whatever it is, uh, whether it's important or not uh, for the Middle East and, and for the Europeans. Uh, as I said, you know, um, my, first, my first group of remarks were inspired by some of the headlines that I've seen, not just uh, uh, magazine covers. I was uh, noticing the other day uh, here in Paris, I'm, I'm speaking out of Paris, there was a magazine cover that said, you know, that now you have war uh, at our gates, at the, uh, referring, uh, referring to the Libya situation. So now there's a war at our gates, uh, our, our meaning the French or the Europeans. And last year, and that's, that would be the implication, is there was no real war at our gates in 2019. Uh, and it's not just the media, it's also uh, some of the most prestigious think tanks. They uh, released uh, uh, special reports on, on this event that uh, you have now the obligation to understand the motivations of some of the foreign states why do they intervene so massively in Libya? And of course, those reports are dedicated to Turkey, but there was no such reports uh, in 2019. And as I was trying to say earlier, uh, this is not the point of view of uh, most uh, ordinary Libyans uh, sitting in, uh, in Tripolitania. Tripolitania is the northwest, the most populous province uh, of, of Libya. This year, if anything, um, I mean, of course, the conflict is not over, and, and I, will, I will say why, uh, despite the fact that the offensive uh, launched in April 2019 by Marshal Haftar and his foreign backers, uh, the offensive was crushed in, in late May and June this year. Uh, and despite that, there's still a sensation that the violence continues, uh, but, but the overall level of violence is, is lower compared to April or March or any other month uh, this, uh, this year, 2020. Uh, so an overall reduction in the, in the level of violence for the time being, and there's nothing uh, brand new in terms of the overall dynamics. Uh, so the best way to visualize uh, why is just to remember the, the timeline. I think I, I, you know, it's always important to, uh, to um, uh, insist on the importance of chronology and, and being precise with it. Uh, as I said, in April, you have this uh, unilateral decision that was made by one person. Uh, it wasn't made by his uh, foreign backers. Marshal Haftar decided to uh, launch a frontal offensive that was technically, uh, in many ways, an aggression against a, a very populous uh, urban area of 1.2 million. And uh, there was this idea that basically now was a reality. Uh, and immediately after that, some of the foreign backers of, of Marshal Haftar began a, a, a series of airstrikes. Uh, one particular state, uh, the United Arab Emirates, conducted uh, 1,000, roughly 1,000 airstrikes using um, Chinese drones and, and French-made airplanes just uh, this, during this period between April 2019 and December 2019. Uh, and still, uh, nobody really talked about a military intervention on the part of this specific state. 
um, and, and it didn't work. Uh, it did um, uh, trigger Turkey to do the same with a time lag of roughly two months or somewhere between eight, you know, eight weeks roughly. Um, you had a smaller intervention using Turkish-made drones, roughly 300 or maybe slightly less during the same period. And uh, there was no conclusive outcome on either part. Uh, in all cases, the, 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 this uh, armed coalition of Haftar was not able to breach into uh, downtown, the downtown area of Tripoli. And uh, everything kind of slowed down um, starting in August, where, where Haftar started having real trouble mobilizing uh, Libyan fighters from the east. And, and that's one of the main reasons we saw appear for the first time in, on the outskirts of Tripoli, uh, Russian mercenaries, a few hundred at the beginning, and that few hundred turned out to be uh, 1,200 and slightly more by the end of, uh, of November. Another event that happened in November after a lull uh, on the part of, of Turkey, Turkey stopped sending uh, ammunition, stopped uh, stopped it, the, the operation of its drones that were running into difficulties anyway. And, uh, and they were able, the Turks, by exerting this kind of pressure in a moment of danger, where the GNA was really in jeopardy and almost on, this, uh, on, on the verge of, of effectively throwing in the towel, uh, they were able to extract from the GNA decision makers the, the, the signature of this uh, uh, dual uh, accord, the maritime accord on the one side, and in exchange, this promise on the part of Turkey to conduct a massive, this time a massive intervention, uh, not completely conventional, but something that actually began in December and officially uh, it was uh, approved in early January by, uh, by the parliament in Ankara. Uh, and, and so this is how we got to uh, 2020. Uh, the first few months, despite the fact that Turkey didn't hide uh, any of its inten intentions, it was really overt, um, uh, there was a tendency on the part of the Europeans and the Arabs, uh, the Arab states, uh, including the Emirates and, and Egypt and Jordan and Saudi Arabia and all these people, to um, underestimate uh, this this event. I mean, it was still a NATO power that was now uh, intervening with a level of, uh, of of blessing and a tacit form of approval on the part of the United States that had given a chance to the Emirates a few months prior. Um, and it worked. It worked not because of the uh, 7,000 or 8,000 Syrian mercenaries that were sent by Ankara into northwest Libya. That is real. It's very real. It's in many ways ugly. Uh, I, I'm not a big uh, fan of that decision, but it's not that uh, military reality that actually made a difference. What made a difference was the technological uh, advantage, the fact that Turkey had its own indigenous technologies, its own arms industry, uh, a good army with a real military doctrine, and uh, a good quality in terms of coordination and, and, and putting, putting together a very comprehensive apparatus. And that's how you got to the situation of, of uh, late May, early, early June, where this offensive of Haftar was physically crushed by the government of national accord the internationally recognized government of Tripoli, backed, of course, by the Turkish drones and, and the Turkish coordinators and officers and, and so on and so forth, uh, along with the uh, 7,000 or 8,000 Syrians. Um, so uh, what I'm saying here, basically, is that the reason the Westerners are shocked this year, uh, you could argue that it's because 
uh, it's a uh, an anti-European or anti, I would say, yeah, anti-European state that was able to uh, pull it off and and stage this uh, uh, quote unquote surprise. It's not so much because now a foreign state was intervening. Uh, quite directly and quite brazenly in Libya. That had happened even before Turkey, but that was not considered uh, alarming because there's this uh, huge uh, charm that the UAE has in Western capitals, especially especially uh, in in Paris. Uh, the second uh, idea that I want to to uh, basically try to, to convince you with today is um, the fact that yes. Uh, there is a very impressive international dimension that is absolutely undeniable. But in the end, whatever experiment was, uh, was attempted uh, on the side of uh, Marshall Haftar in 2019, and that was uh, you know, uh, rewarded with a huge failure in the northwest uh, part of, of Libya earlier this year, that is still a failure. In other, in other words, we, we, uh, we uh, went through a period of uh, 14 months that were effectively an aberration in the sense that without the foreigners, uh, this war that did happen and, and, and was not able to succeed uh, couldn't have happened without the, the foreign states intervening so, uh, so grossly and so directly. And, and one aspect of this aberration is that it was a very simple uh, binary uh, conflict. And that is not at all what is actually happening in the underlying reality, the social anthropological reality of Libya. What Libya has been going through for the last nine years uh, is, uh, is effectively a conflict that is really standing out because of its uh, fragmented nature. There's no uh, overall thrust. There's no Camp A attacking Camp B with, uh, with a, a cohesive uh, form of solidarity on both sides that kind of maintains this uh, very uh, visible and stark fault line. This actually is what Libya looked like for 14 months. But uh, the underlying reality, which is the fact that you have this uh, incredible number of fault lines that are very local, uh, and are not dominated by a theme. It's not integrity versus corruption. It's not secularism versus Islamism. It's not the East versus the West. The Western actors played a big role uh, go going after Tripoli. It was all within uh, the Northwest part of, of Libya. All these binary summaries are, you know, always fail to be fully viable in terms of explaining the, 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 the conflict. So what, what this means now, now that we have a form of peace, it's, it's highly flawed. You still have the anti-personnel mines left by the Russian mercenaries in the Tripoli area that's still killing people. There's no sense that there's a real genuine form of quiet peace, but it, compared, compared to a few months ago, it's still quieter. Uh, and, and this quiet means that you have, you're going to have a resurgence, at least visibly, of the old fault lines that in fact never cease to exist. And for different reasons, the same phenomenon is going to take place, uh, in my view, in the East, because now you have this huge humiliation. People now are completely certain that Haftar has very little, if any, very little political power. He's never going to be able to win uh, Tripoli ever. Um, all those uh, very simple um, schemes uh, are, are certain to not, not become ever a reality. And, and every Libyan knows that. 
in the south and the west and, and including in the east. So what this means concretely is that you're going to have uh, more and more um, uh, tension, not to say clashes with, within the east. So this basically it's what I would call a vengeful uh, comeback uh, of the ultra-local, which really hasn't gone away uh, during the whole time. But now uh, researchers, diplomats, decision makers, everybody uh, is going to have to uh, look at it in, in, in the face. Uh, the, th the third uh, group of remarks, very, very quickly, I don't think that we ever, we are, we are uh, you know, close to uh, uh, any form of, uh, of conclusion to this globalized civil war because, um, I mean, there are many reasons. I'm just going to highlight one, is that Turkey, one of its primary motivations, not the only one, but the primary, I would say, is to uh, use uh, Libya to uh, bolster its, um, I'm not going to say legal, but let's say diplomatic argument to enforce uh, this corridor uh, in the water the uh, exclusive economic zone between the, the southwest part of Turkey and the northeastern part of, of Libya, the Derna area, we should always remember that the maritime aspirations, ambitions to, of, of Turkey uh, need the east. And, and the enemies of Turkey, including the UAE, France, Egypt, and many others, uh, know that. Know that uh, effectively, yes, uh, Turkey was able to pull off this uh, technical, tactical victory within the scope of a very specific battle, within the scope of a very specific uh, province, the, north, the northwest of Libya. But that piece alone, assuming that it has won it, ignoring all kinds of sabotage that will probably be attempted by those states against Turkey to ruin its, uh, its experience in, in Tripolitania, but even assuming that it has won Tripolitania, Tripolitania alone is really not that useful. Uh, if, you, if your goal is to achieve economic viability and, and, and enforce the, the maritime corridor that I was referring to. So uh, that, that basically that problem uh, could be resolved if, if Turkey by miracle uh, has a lot of luck and is able to take cert and after cert it takes the oil croissant, then if it grabs all those uh, strategic territories, then it will have some form of guarantee that the East will never be able to partition away from the rest of Libya. But it hasn't happened. It's going to probably be very, very painful and bloody for the Libyans, not for the Syrian mercenaries, not for the Turks, the people who are likely to die if they go into cert because of all the uh, defense measures installed by, by the Russians and the Emirates. I'm not even mentioning Egypt because Egypt hasn't done so much so far. This, this process is going to be very painful. So uh, Turkey is kind of stuck with a technical victory that is not the end of, of the war. And it will have to do things. It might get nervous if it's not successful and it might start making many more mistakes than we have seen so far. Is the proxy war important? Yes, because despite the presence of Russia, which is really, really meaningful. I mean, I'm not looking to downplay it. But Russia could have done much more in Libya. It could have installed Haftar in the center of, of Tripoli if it had decided to. A strategic decision that it has never made because uh, the Kremlin doesn't believe in Haftar, it never has. Um, so Russia is present, but still, structurally, this conflict from an international perspective is still a fight between US allies. There's nothing that can take away from that reality. And, and they cannot stop. 
they, they keep those states, whether it's France or, or Turkey or the Emirates or Qatar, all of these people, they see that it's turning into a greater and greater disaster, but they cannot stop. It's like an addiction. They cannot behave like adults when it comes to calling out all the violations of, of Libya's sovereignty. They still would like to win uh, like kids. There's no uh, ability to step away. And on the part of America, there's still no commitment in the form of an actual policy. So that's the reason it's so important. It just tells us a lot about the dysfunction when it comes to the international order. Thank you very much. Great, thank you, Jalal. Um, I'll pass on to Elham then, um, and then we'll take the Q&A after that. Thank you, Elham. Um, thank you so much. It's, it's really great to be here with uh, what seems to be like a really great attendance. It's always so difficult to, um, to assess that. I apologize in advance for anything you might hear on my end. I have my own in-house audience in the form of my daughter who um, is, uh, is in the background. So I apologize if you, if you hear her. Um, but I wanted to also focus my intervention on, on three key points. My angle is, is of course different to Jalaz in the sense that hopefully it will complement what he's been saying by looking at the questions from our legal perspective and, and, um, and an accountability angle specifically. Um, and so I'll focus on, on, three, on three parts as well. Um, the first I'll look at is the question of a, of a proxy war because um, I'm troubled by that terminology, it's not legal. So I want to just break that down a little bit and, and explain why, why it's problematic to kind of normalize that kind of language. Uh, the second part is, is actually looking at the violations we're discussing in Libya and, and what those look like and who, um, and, and the issue of attributing responsibility to those, etc. And then I'll conclude um, an attempting a, a proactive or optimistic ending is to look at what accountability mechanisms we have, because uh, I, I'm a firm believer that the, there's no, a conflict can't end without legal accountability for the violations that occur. Uh, you, know, you can't have a sustainable peace without, without genuine justice. And so I, I'll frame it in those, um, in those three, if I may, and I'll, I'll, I'll start with the first, uh, I guess the bane of a lawyer's life is always words. Um, and so we spend most of our time trying to define them and trying to understand them. And I'm also a linguist, and so I think that adds to my personal dilemma. I was just looking at the title of today's discussion, and I think I could have spent 15 minutes on each of the words. Of, you know, what, are we, what do we mean by 2020? What do we mean by region? What do we mean by important? Um, and each of them could have taken us down a, a very fascinating rabbit hole. But the, the words I want to focus on is, is proxy war, because it's become a term that's very easily and very casually and comfortably used by all of us, um, and especially um, the, the media and political analysts. Um, however, it is, not a, um, it is not a legal term, and it's a very useful term actually to absolve meddlers of responsibility in some instances. And I think that is very problematic for us from a legal perspective. Um, and I'll elaborate a little bit on that. When you're looking at an armed conflict under international law, there's only two classifications. It's either a non-international armed conflict, there's an international armed conflict. A concept of an inter internationalized non-international armed conflict is not really a legal expression. There is no third category. There's these two categories and there's potential to break down a conflict in a country and say some elements of, some elements of it are non-international and others are international. This might seem like a super technical, quite boring legal distinction to make, but it's absolutely fundamental to understand that the concept of a proxy war or 
something that was civil but became international or became globalized means it's got some kind of new legal status to it that um, that somehow means we look at it differently is technically legally not a thing. Um, so when, if you look at the Libyan conflict, it is still the, um, classified by um, by international law as a non-international armed conflict, although there is arguments to say that some elements of it um, might, you, you might want to make the argument that they are international, but it's not been uh, reclassified as, as far as I'm aware. The last classification was at the start of this year. Um, and, I, and I think the, the issue there is then a lot of the terminology we use about the crimes and the responsibility, et cetera, is, um, is interesting to look at. And so in a non-international armed conflict, what you're looking at is effectively um, an uprising or uh, non-state actors um, trying to fight a state actor. So that is how the Libyan conflict is um, is being is being seen. And so and, and the understanding is at various points those entities have changed who the state actor is and who the non-state actor is. But since 2011, that's been the sort of the formulation of Libya. Um, and the state actor in this instance is seen as the GNA and the non-state actor is seen as uh, the Libyan Arab Armed Forces um, in some of the classifications. And I, and I think that's interesting to understand because then it means that actually the reaction of the state in, in trying to subdue an uprising is entirely legitimate and legal. Um, and that is where the classification matters. Why using the term proxy war is problematic is because it somehow suggests that the external actors are utilizing this non-international armed conflict, but they're not part of it in some way. And I think what we are trying to argue is to say, well, actually their involvement might, if it, if it reaches a certain level, make it an international armed conflict, in which case there's a much bigger game to play here. And an international armed conflict is one between states. So what we want to be showing technically, legally, is actually the conflict is no longer just Libyan state versus belligerents, but it's uh, Turkey versus UAE or Turkey versus uh, Russia, or wh whoever you classify as international actors. It's obviously very difficult to make that legal argument, which is why it remains uh, an internal or non-international armed conflict. Sorry, this feels like a super convoluted explanation, but the, the point I want to make is when we come and talk about the involvement of international actors, it's really important to try to bring their, from a legal perspective, their involvement as direct violations they commit. Using terms like proxy war or trying to explain that it's a non-international armed conflict that's become international is too convoluted, too difficult to do. And so what you want to be looking at instead is actually what are the violations they're committing and can a third state be be responsible for those? And the answer is yes. And so we kind of skip the very, very academic argument about what kind of conflict this is and who the parties are. And really, does it really, really matter? No, it's just a very satisfying academic argument that we like to have as lawyers. Um, but the reality of it, the violations we see in Libya um, are, are significant, are varied, many amount to war crimes and many um, potentially um, could amount to crimes against humanity. And therefore, we need to look very clearly at who, there is, who is responsible there. And that brings me to my second topic that I wanted to look at, which is violations and attributing responsibility. Um, and I guess if you look at violations, there's two kinds of violations. Um, there are the ongoing ones, which are not really linked to the conflict. Um, and I won't spend much time talking about those. They're the ones that are, the biggest example of those is things like arbitrary detention, 
um, the issues around migrant migrant uh, abuses, etc. Those were there predate the conflict and, and um, have have continued throughout it. But then there is ones that are conflict related um, violations, and those are the ones we've seen in terms of the targeting of civilians, um, the shelling of, of civilian um, targets, uh, but also the flip side of um, placing military targets next to civilians, that's also potentially, um, well, that is also illegal and potentially a crime. And so it is important to look at both elements of this, right? The fact that civilians are being targeted is a significant issue. The fact that civilians are being placed in danger is also a significant issue. Um, there's also the question of enforced disappearances, which we have seen um, increase significantly actually across the country um, and across the, the actors that we've been discussing extrajudicial killings, which is basically killing people without a uh, process um, or illegally, unlawfully, uh, forced displacement. We know, we know that there is um, a, a, you know, around the region of half a million Libyans who have been internally displaced as a result of this conflict, but there's internal displacements which can, to some, in some capacity, some might argue is, is voluntary, but there's quite a high proportion of Libyans who have been forced into forced displacement, which means that you don't have the option to return. And the examples that Jalal was talking about with the use of landmines, et cetera, makes it very difficult for certain people who were uh, displaced during the conflict to return to their, to their homes because of the, the risks there. Um, and then from the internationals who are involved, we've seen obviously breaches of the arms embargo, which um, is, is illegal. Uh, we've also seen the use of mercenaries, although again, I would qualify the term mercenaries because actually at international law that's a very very specific term and um, I, I'm, I'd query whether all the people that we've seen in Libya would classify legally as mercenaries but in any case it's problematic and it's illegal what we've been seeing in terms of bringing foreign fighters into the country. Um, and then we've also seen obviously the use of prohibited weapons um, including cluster bombs and, and landmines like I mentioned. Um, the the uh, attributing responsibility um, there is the question of, again, looking at the domestic actors versus the local actors. There is um, real difficulty in Libya to really um, look at any kind of use of, well, actually looking at the weapons that are being used by the domestic actors. They all use pretty much the same weapons. And so when you're trying to determine who's committed what violation, it's actually a lot harder than might. That, that might appear on Twitter or then might appear in a conversation and saying, well, we know it's definitely that person because actually a lot of them are using exactly the same heavy artillery and trying to attribute which uh, of the many militias is responsible can, can get very difficult. And I use the term militias to include the LAAF as well. Um, and the other part is also the question of the... Um, the international actors and attributing responsibility to them. And then that brings me back obviously to the first topic I said about really not absolving people by making them more remote. The, the provision of arms is a direct breach um, of the arms embargo. The targeting of civilians with drone attacks is a direct breach of international law. And so this is not a proxy act, this is a direct act in my mind. And it's important not to hide behind this nomenclature. Um, and I think one of, um, I'm conscious of the time because I really, really want to have to ha I want to have a conversation it's instead of a lecture, but I think that I'll, I'll conclude by bringing all this together in the, in the part about, well, how, how do we address these breaches and these violations and, and this international, non-international proxy, whatever it is we're talking about. And I think there is actual opportunity for accountability. And that's where I would like to put my energy is into seeing, okay, well, how can you counter some of this, right? And there, 
we, we have a little bit of a struggle with domestic accountability in Libya because the judiciary is effectively um, stagnant at the moment. Um, and so we need to look at international and regional mechanisms to, um, to achieve accountability. And, and the, the opportunity that's available in Libya is that actually there's a lot of international mechanisms with jurisdiction over the Libyan situation. And so there is opportunity for accountability. What is lacking is political will. Um, and I'm sure we'll pick that up in the questions, uh, what we mean by political will, because um, it's, it's one of those terms, again, that's used in, and abused um, a lot. Uh, but if we look at the international mechanisms that are available as perhaps the most well known or well heard or most heard of is the International Criminal Court, which um, despite having quite a wide mandate, because interestingly, if you look at the mandate of the court in Libya, it's to look at the situation in Libya, um, which I know sounds obvious, but it actually then means that you can also look at other actors in Libya. It's not limited to Libyan actors. And so the ICC is empowered to look at what other countries are doing in Libya, because it's looking at basically what happens on the territory of Libya, as opposed to um, the jurisdiction being over Libyan actors or the Libyan state's actions. And so it actually has a lot more um, realm to investigate third state behavior in Libya than it, it has done so far, uh, or has done at all. Um, and the other problem with the ICC is that there is a, 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 a strong team and a willing team within the investigations in the office of the prosecutor, but its resources, both in terms of human and financial, are very limited on the Libya file. And I think there is a, a sense that it was embarrassed by the first few arrest warrants that didn't go anywhere, that it doesn't want to continue to be behaving in a failed way in the country. And so there, you can see there's a sense of trepidation of not proving its in incompetence by continuing to pursue cases in Libya, which I can pick up if people want to ask questions about what I mean by that. But there is a sense that they need super solid cases before they pursue anything in Libya because they're, you know, they've had four, four people, five people subject to arrest warrants. Um, they lost jurisdiction over one, which is Lucy. Gaddafi Sr. died. Uh, Gaddafi Jr. has been finding his admissibility for a while, although they still have jurisdiction. He hasn't been handed over by the Libyan state. Tuhami uh, Khaled has not been, that, that arrest warrant hasn't been exercised, and Wafali hasn't been exercised. So they, they've got several arrest warrants with no response from the international actors who might be able to help or from the Libyan um, authorities to hand over. And so there is a sense of a bit of deadlock in that file. But in addition to that, we also have a sanctions mechanism, which is extremely and woefully underutilized. Um, and I think one thing I'd want to highlight here is when the UN, as a multilateral entity, puts in place a panel of experts that then identifies people who might be subject or should be subject to sanctions, and individual countries do not use their sanctions mechanisms to pursue that. That's actually a breach of their obligations as a UN member state. It's, you know, it is up to each individual state to fulfill the, the resolutions of the UN. And so when you do not fulfill that resolution as an individual state, then you are not fulfilling your duties as a state, as a member state of the UN. I think there is a lot there to be done on holding states with sanctions mechanisms that don't fully utilize them accountable. Uh, and there's uh, there's opportunities there because we've seen recently the the UK willing to use some of its sanctions mechanisms to pursue human rights violations um, against uh, Russia and, and Saudi Arabia. And so I think there is room there to do some advocacy, at least in, in the UK, 
on the role of the UAE, for example, um, in Libya. Because um, you, you obviously need the nexus of having ability to sanction them in the UK, and so you need um, individuals or, or entities with assets that can be sanctioned. Uh, we also have the opportunity of universal jurisdiction, which is another one of those terms that sounds super exciting and super sexy, but is often romanticized in, uh, when we come to deal with it in practice. One of the most, you know, one of the most obvious examples of, so universal jurisdiction, just to explain for those who might not be familiar with the term, is the idea that there are certain crimes in international law that are so egregious that you as a state can choose to have, they, there's universal jurisdiction of them. You don't have to have a nexus with the person or the or the events that happened, and so those include uh, crimes against humanity and and, and torture and, and genocide. Um, and we have seen that used in countries um, in the in the Syrian context very successfully. And there has been attempts in France uh, on the Libyan file as well. Um, there were rumors that there might be something in Germany around the Berlin process, but it is uh, it was very difficult for anything to be done in that context because the person who was pursued then or the rumors were surrounding was Haftar, but actually uh, Haftar had immunity at that point. So there was, there was no possibility of pursuing him because he was there as a, on a mission, a special mission. And so he had immunity from, from um, any kind of legal proceedings. And so there again, you have the question of political will and how that impacts on accountability. Um, the final two things I'll comment on here is, is on the, there's recently um, about a month ago at the UN, we, we uh, Human Rights Council, a fact-finding mission for Libya was established after many, many years of um, advocacy by, by NGOs um, working on this file, including, including LFJL. And uh, there, the fact-finding mission's purpose is to establish the facts of what have happened in terms of human rights violations and violations of international humanitarian law. Um, it has its weaknesses, um, which include the fact that it only really has a nine-month mandate, because it was started in June and it has to report in March. But in reality, by the time it gets set up and they recruit the staff, et cetera, we'll only have two to three months realistically of actually investigating. And so it, it has to be very efficient. Um, but it also uh, has a limited mandate of looking at events since 2016 um, only, which is useful to include the events that we've seen recently, but obviously doesn't include the very crucial war that occurred between 2014 and 2016 with the violations that, that happened in that, in that conflict. Um, but also, I think one of the key points there that would make the fact-finding mission far more successful, given its very limited mandate, is to ensure that the right expertise are on there and that it's properly resourced. And, you know, you, it's, it's one thing to get a fact-finding mission, it's another thing to get a successful mission. And I think what we want to ensure is that this is a successful mission. So there's a lot of work to be done to ensure that there is strong experts, that there's proper resources, and there's proper access in country for the um, investigators. Um, the Berlin process has its own accountability attempt through looking at the, uh, there's a human rights and international humanitarian law working group that has been established recently and, and the view there is, is for it to, to um, assess the situation as well. And it, we, it, it's important to us that what we see is a collaboration between these different mechanisms and not uh, a duplication or competition that then creates voids of accountability. But then there's also other opportunities um, of more creative work. And we've seen that through excellent foundations and organizations like the GLAN network, um, which look at less traditional routes. So for example, they have looked at questions of budgets in European countries going towards Libya 
in aid or in anything else and how that's been used um, and holding those countries accountable for that kind of relationship. So the money trail, if you like. And I think that's not been done enough and there's opportunities to, to, to really hit people in their pockets um, as well. And so these are just some ideas that we can throw out there and I'm, I'm hoping people will pick up and we can discuss more in the conversation. But I, before I conclude, I have one question for the audience, if I may. Um, whenever we talk about Libya, we always talk about this internationalized situation. It's a global conflict. It's an, you know, it's an international conflict. But we have seen every single multilateral um, body mention Libya and deal with Libya in its words in the correct way, right? We had the Berlin process with a very strong statement that came in, and then within 24 hours, key people who signed up to it breaching it on a unilateral basis. We've seen UN statement after UN statement, uh, UN resolutions demanding sanctions, and then people breaching the arms embargo that was passed by the UN. And so I guess my question, in a country where this internationalization that we keep referencing is happening on a unilateral and bilateral basis, why do we keep going back to multilateral solutions for Libya, where there's clearly no respect for those? Um, because I see in the questions a lot of questions about the role of the UN in this, et cetera, whereas actually I'm not sure that those are always the most suitable routes. They're the only ones we have available to us, but I really want to probe how we can make them deal better with third state responsibility in Libya and holding their member states accountable as opposed to um, giving them in, in, impunity, if you like. So my question to the audience is, we know, does this multilateral approach really work or is it just sort of procedural and tokenistic? I went way over, I'm really sorry. I always think I speak less than I do, but if any, anyone who's been signed with me knows that's not true. No, that's fine. Thank you, Aham. Um, so we have quite a few questions actually. So we will just move on then to the Q&A. Um, I will relay the questions. Some of them are um, for each of you. Some of them are kind of general and, I, and I'll leave it to the panelists to respond as they see fit. Um, again, just a reminder, if you still do have a question, please do post it in the Q&A box. Um, so I think actually, Elham, we'll go off kind of um, off the end of, of what you were talking about. And there was a couple of questions looking at um, international law. So there was a comment here um, about um, you challenging the language that we use when we're describing the conflict. Um, and so the question then is how do we encourage um, a more accurate terminology to be used when we're talking about the conflict and talking about holding people to account? And along with the similar lines of that, there's a question after that that looks at whether or not international law is actually a deterrent enough um, for state actors that are involved in Libya. So is it really realistic to expect accountability? that sense so I think they tie quite nicely together. It's an existential question for me. It um, is. <laughs> but I, I think those are really good points. So I'll explain a little bit maybe in a conflict that we're all familiar with about the dangers of use of changing legal terminology. Um, you know we all lived through uh, US involvement in, in Iraq etc and one of the terms that came that keep coming up in, in the US is things like um, like an uh, what is it, like a, a civilian combatant or, or terminology like that, which is not a legal terminology, you're either a civilian or you're a combatant in international law. But the reason you'll get political attempts to kind of create new terminology or, you know, enhanced interrogation techniques, that is not a thing. It's torture. And I think one of the things we need as lawyers, we have to be very protective of is to make sure that we name things 
as they are and not give room to recreate or re or redefine legal term terminology to either water it down or to create some kind of exceptionalism. So that's kind of the wider reason why we get paranoid about calling things as they are. The problem is if, if we keep, and, and this is maybe just a personal issue because I'm a, like I'm, I'm a real, I guess, you know, pedant, is that the fact that we call it a proxy war, that doesn't help me making a case for accountability because that is not a legal term that's identifiable. What does help me is someone, is us talking about states breaching international resolutions, UN resolutions. And so if you want to be saying that the UAE's uh, meddling in Libya, then let's just say they're breaching UN resolutions, because then that gives us something to go after them for, right? By just saying that they're participating in a, a proxy war, it, it's, it then requires a lot of, a lot more steps to get to the position, whereas actually if we just can get into the habit and empower even journalists to really name things correctly and legally, then we can create this kind of momentum of accountability. And I'm not sure, I'm not sure if that answers the question, but I think there is an issue with um, normalizing violations because we give them names that we can use in casual, uh, colloquial conversation. What I would prefer is for us to normalize legal language and give it the power at the local level. And so talking about violations is much more important to me and, and than talking about term, you know, this kind of um, ter terminology that makes it just a bit more sexy to say proxy war or, um, or whatever um, journalists might, might like to use. So we, we try to work with journalists as well to try and help them along the way of using a bit more of the kind of words we would like to see in, in the coverage of Libya. Um, it's a bit also like using terms like a failed state in Libya, which is, it's, it's, it's very interesting from a political science perspective, but it also absolves the state to a degree from a responsibility because then you get the Libyan state quoting that back to us and saying, what do you expect from us? We don't, we don't have institutions. And so that almost then empowers people to not meet their obligations um, because they can hide behind what becomes the narrative of the country, which is that this is external, that this is a proxy that we can't really go after the people who really are responsible, that it's a failed state and there's no institutions. And then all of that becomes effectively the defense. And if you actually look, it's a bit of a tangent, but if you look at resolutions from the UN, they start adopting that language. So if you look at any resolution on Libya, the first few paragraphs will be apologizing for the failure of the Libyan state, which is, which is just mind blowing when you think about it. Like, we acknowledge the difficulty the Libyan state has with this. We acknowledge the lack of institutions. We acknowledge this. And that's because we've normalized this, this conversation around Libya being a failed state and therefore you can't achieve much. Then what, even the accountability things like resolutions start adopting that language. It then weakens the responsibility of the state. It then weakens the language. So I think there's a lot more power in language than we think. Um, the second question feels very much like, a, it gives me a bit of a shudder because it feels like an international, like my, my LLM, is international fit for purpose type question that you have to write an essay on. Um, I think international law has a deterrence if it is actually operationalized. And that is not up to just the ICC because ultimately the ICC is an institution that is funded by states. And so it needs to receive the proper funding to do its work and it needs to be empowered. It cannot only be enforced by the UN because the UN is a, is a collection of member states and they need to fund it properly and empower those missions properly. So we have a fact-finding mission, but we also at the same time has a, have a hiring freeze in the UN. So how are they going to hire the experts to do this? They're going to start recruiting internally. Is that really what we want? Question mark. Um, and so then it, 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 all these elements 
all come down to the thing that we talked about before. And unfortunately, as much as we'd like to think that law is this beautiful thing that's separate from politics, international law is very much empowered by political will of countries because a lot of the mechanisms that we would be used would need to be supported and funded by those member states. Universal jurisdiction, again, these are incredible laws that exist in a lot of states, but then if every time someone who is coming to the country that you might want to pursue is given immunity by the political actors in that country, then how are you going to pursue that work? And so there's, that's where the, the political will is impacting. So I think my, the flaw is not with international law. The flaw is with political actors and the same people that we're talking about meddling in Libya, not using the political will to further it, but more so to curtail it. Um, I, I hope that answers the question. Um, if not, please um, message me more. No, thank you. I think that was an important point about this idea that it's the incorrect use of language is basically absolving accountability. And when you get that right, then I'm not saying that's a solution, but that might be one way. Thank you. Um, so, Jalal, there's a question for you, actually, uh, and we're moving on to um, the other actors that, that are in Libya. And there's a question here. Um, you obviously talked about Turkey um, and, and Turkey's goals in Libya, and you mentioned at the end there um, some kind of reference to Russia. And we have a question then on what do you, what are the goals of these other players in Libya? So more specifically, the question is asking about the UAE, Egypt, Russia and France and, and what their goals are there. Yeah, I mean, the, the question about this, this particular question when it comes to the UAE has been... Uh, really uh, recurring over the last several years because um, a lot of political scientists who at least don't necessarily study the international dimension very seriously and using all the tools offered by the literature, they really struggle because uh, you have this notion that the UAE is uh, realistic, uh, disciplined, and, uh, and deeply sensitive to economic arguments. For instance, everybody knows that Dubai is very good with uh, maritime transport and the management of ports. Um, and uh, they have ports um, in, in Nigeria, for example. So you could imagine that the priority from the Marathi state's perspective is to seize uh, the really tremendous economic um, and logistical potential of Libya, uh, which is unique, and, and basically turn it uh, into Dubai. So you have this idea that it's a, a state whose priority is pragmatic, and it happens to be, you know, related to uh, economic and other, um, and other very tangible considerations. A lot of this is true, but it's superseded by another objective that really is, a, is at the top uh, in terms of the picking order, and it has to do with uh, making sure that, that not any ideology is allowed to have influence over Tripoli over the way this very rich, meaningful nation that that's lucky enough to have a small population. You, you know, if you view yourself as the geopolitical overseer of the entire Arab Sunni area and more, if you include the, the Horn of Africa, this is really how uh, Abu Dhabi thinks of itself. It has started thinking of itself this way, particularly uh, when it was disappointed with the American decision to let uh, Hosni Mubarak get toppled in January 2011. So you, we are basically in this very peculiar situation where a microstate that, of course, happens to be very wealthy and, and successful uh, on a domestic level in many regards, it thinks of itself as the replacement of the United States. 
you know, you might laugh at it, uh, but it, this is actually the political science reality of it. And, and when you are responsible for an area, like the way the US has felt responsible for the entire Western hemisphere, you cannot just allow any ideology to succeed. Otherwise, you exert no political control and your precise goal is to actually have a say. So the ideological objective of the UAE is absolutely sacrosanct. That's the number one goal and they're absolutely obsessed with it. That explains their behavior. The fact that you have so many uh, pragmatic solutions that are continually and perpetually missed by this state. You know, if you go back to Tripoli before April 2019, it really looked much less uh, hostile to the Emirati worldview than now. And the reason they still uh, helped Haftar uh, uh, pursue his offensive is because they want absolute victory. And absolute victory is an objective or an aspiration that is characteristic of states that are obsessed with the ideological uh, aspect of things as opposed to uh, tangible concrete considerations like finding some kind of a happy medium that is good enough from the security perspective. When the Emirates speak about security, they don't talk about conventional security. They're obsessed with political and ideological security. And, and that might have a point, but the problem is that this um, agenda is awfully ambitious and usually throughout history, because they're not the first ones to pursue this kind of goal, it gives rise to a, a very maximalist, absolutist, and, 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 and let's be frank about it, violent uh, behavior. So the top objective is ideological. Make sure that uh, not only do you eradicate political Islam, but uh, achieve some kind of equilibrium that gives you the guarantee that political Islam cannot stage a comeback. That's, you know, very, very ambitious. So that explains a lot of what we have, seen, have been seeing. France is not really supportive of Haftar. Uh, it could have been Peter, Paul, or Jack. It doesn't really care. What France is attached to is its um, uh, deep, wide friendship with the Emiratis. Why? Because France would like to restore its historical role over a big portion of Africa, and it knows that it cannot do it alone. The Europeans are not helping. The U.S. has been disappointing. And uh, so it sees its friendship with uh, the UAE as ideal. Uh, and they view themselves as attaching themselves to, uh, to a form of guaranteed success because primarily the UAE spends a lot of money. It hates political Islam. You have a lot of echoes of this uh, among decision makers in Paris. And, uh, and the economic argument is really, really important because uh, they think that the French think that they can basically agree with the policy and end up spending very little. Uh, one corollary is that they don't decide anything, the French. All they do is follow decisions that have been made, uh, you know, 5,000 kilometers away from Paris. And, uh, and Egypt is much less uh, aggressive than people typically make it out to be. It's deeply busy with its growing population, uh, the debt crisis that is uh, looking uglier and uglier, other security concerns, like obviously with Ethiopia, the Sinai, and, econ uh, and, and the, the economic repercussions of a, of a, of a still evolving uh, pandemic. So Egypt is, is, not, is not the top uh, supporter of Haftar. It opposed the offensive in Tripoli, for example, but it wasn't listened to. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so actually, and I, I will just um, kind of put this question out and whoever sees fit to answer can. Um, there is a question more about kind of what's going on 
on the ground at the moment. So there's a question that's asking um, around the, the role of the, of the two sides. So it looks like the GNA is preparing to launch an offensive against the LNA and associated forces um, in and around CERT. So the LNA appears to be preparing that offensive as well. Do you think there will be an offensive or will it actually be a kind of solidifying of the front lines as they are? And maybe you, Jalani, you might want to start because you kind of talked about that at the moment we're in kind of a, a stagnant state in Libya. Yeah, I mean, the true answer is that nobody knows. If anybody says they know the answer to this question, they're lying to you. It's a typical situation of radical uncertainty uh, within this theater called, called Libya. There has been a lot of uh, military work that has been done since uh, June 5th. June 5th is the moment when uh, the offensive of Haftar uh, got physically crushed. Uh, on the outskirts of, of Tripoli. Uh, uh, the Russians, as I said, uh, never believed in the offensive to begin with, and they basically began, even in mid-May, uh, preparing the next phase, which is to not help Haftar with the offensive part of, his, uh, of the LNA's action, but uh, concentrate on a defensive uh, duty or defensive assignment, if you will. Uh, all of that is done through uh, this uh, weird creature called Wagner, which is not exactly uh, the Kremlin, certainly not. And it's not uh, a purely commercial uh, venture either. It's somewhere in between. It's a commercial entity that happens to be linked politically uh, to the Kremlin. And what these people did was uh, not only install uh, brand new fighter jets in the middle of, of, of Libya in the Jofra Air Base, uh, that was to, to protect CERT. Uh, in, in great part, and also project power in the southwest of, of, of Libya. But you had snipers, you had a huge amount of air defense systems and other equipment, uh, very expensive. That's not the style of the Kremlin. So I invite you to wonder who's paying for all these gimmicks and toys and goodies. Uh, and you have, again, anti-personnel mines uh, planted in, in the hundreds and hundreds. So now you basically have CERT that has been transformed into a bloody trap, very, very dangerous trap. Uh, a lot of civilians left the area. And, uh, and now if the parts of the GNA or parts of Ankara somehow uh, orchestrate uh, an offensive, then they're invited to knock themselves out. It's gonna be bloody. Uh, maybe they will win, maybe they will find the, the wherewithal and, and, and they will muster this uh, you know, willingness to sacrifice hundreds and hundreds of lives, uh, or they will, uh, they will realize that there's nothing that they can do and you'll have a stalemate for many months years. Thank you. Um, okay, I mean, we have a lot of questions coming in. Um, a lot of them are about these different actors. And, and I think there's this one question that's looking at, uh, or asking, sorry, about the failure of the EU's uh, strategy in, in Libya. So um, the kind of policies that are skewed towards favoring uh, France and Italy's interests, and we haven't really brought Italy into the conversation very much yet, so this might be um, the next question to address. Um, and maybe we can bring kind of a political perspective and, and even a legal perspective as well. Um, the question then has a number of parts to it, but the first one then is, uh, do, do you think France and Italy are, are their interests really kind of a clashing over national or business interests in Libya? Um, or is it really just kind of poor um, and again, we're not, Ham is not keen on the term proxy war, but for the, for the question, is it really just kind of uh, poor fighting or proxy fighting between um, those two nations? And how do you think that relationship between France and Italy um, impacts the dynamic between the various foreign players that are involved um, in Libya? 
Yeah, I'm going to give it a shot very quickly. And I'm very, very interested in hearing Ham's answer when it comes to what it means, the EU. From mm -hmm. perspective. Does it have responsibility? Does it have to meet some standards in terms of accountability and, and so on and so forth? Can it make mistakes that it might regret later on? Um, so that the Ilhan's expertise on this is going to be very important. On, on my end, I will just say that uh, two things about Italy, three things about Italy. Number one, Italy and France should never be put at the same level. Italy is much smaller, much weaker, and much less influential than France. France is definitely the geopolitical leader in, in the EU because uh, the Brit Britain has shrunk and it has shrunk outside of the EU. It's not even part of the EU anymore. So uh, France is the behemoth. And, and Italy is that little uh, burn of the, you know, trying to follow. It's much weaker. We should not forget about this. The other thing is that Italy has always planned on embracing uh, Haftar. That decision was made uh, in 2015. Uh, of course, it did it gradually, and it knew that it had to take some unilateral action because of migration, because of energy. Uh, but it always had this idea of actually converging towards uh, a very Egyptian kind of uh, way of looking at, uh, of, at Libya, and, and it didn't work out. Uh, number three, the, the antagonism that we have in mind is, is so 2017. It's, you know, there's no fact to illustrate this over the last uh, 18 months. Uh, especially since uh, you know the new government of uh, Giuseppe Conte uh, swept into power in early September 2019. Ever since, there hasn't been not even a rhetorical, a rhetorical uh, uh, disagreement between Italy and, and France. Of course, now Italy is more genuine, more sincere, and more humble, trying to restore its um, connection with, with Tripoli because it really clearly uh, abandoned Tripoli uh, in, in ways that really shocked a lot of Libyans in, in Misrata and Tripoli. Uh, and France is, is, uh, uh, doesn't care as much. It doesn't have the historical baggage. Uh, it just doesn't have the dependency in terms of the same old risks, migration, um, proximity, and, and dependency on energy. But, you know, I invite people to uh, really imagine a much smaller, timid Italy and a France that really is not really exposed to migration consequences, not really exposed to the energy considerations, and, and not exposed not really exposed to any kind of uh, precedent that would scare it from a, from a, a terrorism perspective. So France is, you know, sees the Fazanas very close to it, but doesn't see uh, the, the coast of Libya, which is physically closer. It doesn't see it as close. So it's just a weird, distorted perception of Italy, uh, of Libya, that will continue, and it and 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 nothing is going to. Nobody in the EU is really going to stop France. Is what I'm trying to say over the next several years. That explains a lot of the arrogance. And, and Ham, do you want to also comment um, on that? Well, I, I mean, I can't comment on politics um sorry in the middle i missed a little bit of your question because i was trying to shove my daughter off camera so is did you want me to look at the accountability or the responsibility of the eu yeah. um yeah. i think the first of all i think uh, just to build up on jalal's point there is a misconception and again i go back to nomenclature there's a misconception that the eu is a united position and so i think it's really important to just take a moment and think about that the italy france uh, diff differences are, 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 you know, are worth noting and people have used that to, to show the lack of coherence of an EU strategy. But also, uh, if you look at the, like the process around Irini and, and how long it took for them to agree on a position there. And, and that, I think, the negotiations around that, even from countries that don't seem to be 
interested in Libya, like Austria, shows the priorities of certain EU states in the terms of the narrative or the perspective or the way in which Libya is considered by individual states is different. Um, for me, the, there's two problems with that, is that regardless of which states we're talking about, really Libya for the European members and for the EU is looked at in one of two prisms, either as a counterterrorism file or as a migration file, and that's it. Both of those sort of prisms have a very dangerous consequence of dehumanizing the conflict and militarizing the solution. And I think that's where we just need to kind of take a step back and try to counter narratives like that. Um, in terms of accountability, the, the biggest work that's been done on the EU's accountability for what happened to Libya is around the migration file um, and around its responsibility in continuing to support directly or indirectly the Libyan Coast Guard and their, um, their, retur their returns of, of migrants from, from sea. And there is uh, a not insignificant amount of precedent now that says that that is fundamentally problematic, that is largely uh, illegal, especially the bilateral agreements between uh, Libya and, and Italy, which are then endorsed at the EU level. So there is a chain there as well. Um, in terms of um, responsibility in, in the context of the, of the conflict, I think that's a little bit harder to show, um, uh, including at the French level. Um, but, I, but, I, but there is a lot of work that's being done by very good French lawyers on this, uh, on this theme in, in, in France at the moment. But I think the, the most successful work that's been done, and some of the examples I gave in my accountability was on that. It's looking at the European, not just their funding of, um, uh, so, that, so a really recent example is that there's been a complaint filed with the auditors, uh, the EU audit, audit, I can't remember what it's called, is it the auditor court? But there's one of the um, EU mechanisms is this auditing thing where they where they basically look at the money of how the EU spends its money. And there is a really a really interesting complaint that was filed about the funding that the EU gives to Libya on the migrant file and to try to look at it from the perspective of taxpayers and using money uh, in a way that's um, uh, clean and correct and, 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 and the like. And so I think there is scope to look at that. There hasn't really been anything as far as I'm aware, really looking at EU responsibility beyond the migration file. Sorry, it's not a very coherent answer. No, but actually there, there, is, a, there is a question um, that you may then kind of- Shalal is smiling, why are you smiling, Shalal? <laughs> <laughs> um, there is a question um, along looking at or asking about migrant policies um, and what the role of the EU migrant policies um, are, what, what kind of role did they play in influencing domestic policies in Libya? So, you may kind of want to then continue your answer. Yeah, I mean, I think there lines. is there there is much more um, that can be said about like there the ter terms like complicity are much more easy to use because um, you know a lot of Libyan domestic policy is driven by support um, from the EU on this, whether that's financial support or training or uh, bilateral agreements by, with with Italy. But you know the entire um, if you look at the, the migration file in Libya, there isn't a, a single international body, whether that's the IOM, the UNHCR, every single civil society organization that's worth its dime that has said that Libya is, every single one of them has said Libya is not a safe third country. The European Court of Human Rights has concluded on at least two occasions that returning migrants to Libya is, is illegal. Yet we see time after time agreements that are entered into between bilaterals with Italy or with the EU, where, which sees Libyan 
the Libyan Coast Guard effectively carrying on the work that was deemed to be illegal, illegal by Italy, right? So the Italian pushback policy was illegal and so it was outsourced to Libya to do the, that work, but it's still achieving the same thing. And we also saw at a, at a wider level in the Irini conversations when they were discussing the, the scope of the Irini project, the resistance was, hold on a second, we want to make sure this doesn't become a rescue operation. And that was Austria's, like, position is uh, under no circumstances can Irini save lives in the sea. And so you can see that every single decision that's made out of the EU is, is focused and, and obsessed. And, and, and you think of a country like Austria, what is going to reach it from the migrant crisis? It's bloody landlocked. It's, not gonna, it's nowhere near the front line on this, on this situation. Yet this obsession, this narrative of kind of the other reaching Europe and this migrant file is so enshrined in the kind of mentality of the politics of Europe at the moment that it's affecting even something like Irini, which was meant to be about monitoring the arms embargo. Yet the condition on it was that it doesn't become embroiled in, in rescues at sea. And so you see that at every level. And then you also see that um, you, you'll get EU representatives constantly saying to you, and this is one of my favorite statistics, is that, oh, you know, we understand that the Libyan Coast Guard is flawed and we understand that there's issues with the, um, with the detention centers and we're trying our best to remedy that. In fact, you know, human rights training and treatment of migrants is at the forefront of what we do. And then there was a freedom of information request to get the training ma manuals of the EU on their training of the Libyan Coast Guard. And the element of human rights training amounted to less than 0.1% of the training they received, which, is, which was one power point slide. And so to then be using that to, route, to sort of kind of um, justify your intervention and your funding and your support of the Libyan Coast Guard to say, but we're, we're meeting our obligations from a human rights perspective is, is problematic to say the least. And so I think there, there is absolutely no difficulty in making an argument that what's happening in Libya to migrants is supported and to a degree empowered by EU policy because the Libyan Coast Guard would not be going out of their way to go get people and bring them back to Libya and put them in detention centers if they weren't being told and funded to do that by EU states or the EU directly. Um, and so there is a direct link to that. Returning people to Libya has always been a problem, yet the EU has continued to support that position. The, the, the detention centers that are continuing to abuse migrants should not exist. Um, in, in, you know, in, in any good practice on migrant situations, detention centers are not the optimum way to deal with migrants. Yet, as much as the EU will tell you it's their policies that there should be no detention centers, they acknowledge that they need to be there for the time being. And so you get this really dual kind of thing of the outward statements again and then what happens and to think that there is a unified policy the only unified policy that the eu has on migration in libya is to keep migrants out of libya at any, out of out of europe at any costs um yeah i mean I, we have a i have a lot to say about this we have a rewritten a lot about this so if people want to carry on the conversation i'm very happy for them to email me separately about this thank you um Shalanda, do you want to comment on anything in terms of migrant policies should i move on um, no, I think she, um, I think Alan uh, just uh, covered it very well. I mean, it's, uh, it's definitely, um, I would just say that it's, a, it's an issue that uh, will probably grow because we went through a relatively uh, quiet moment from, from the European's perspective, not, not from the African or Libyan perspective over the last uh, two, three years. But uh, there are signs already that uh, indicate that we might come back to the dynamic we had before July 2017. So we have to really focus on this a lot. But also, sorry, can I just add to that? The, the fact that it seems like by quiet period, you mean we haven't seen dead bodies at sea? 
Is that what we mean? Because I think that's part of the EU narrative is to say that all the kind of projects with Libya have worked because actually there's fewer people dying at sea. I would say that even what you're saying is too optimistic. It's worse than uh, that. Yeah, yeah. No, no, okay. Because I think I want to pick up on that because one of the things the EU will say often is actually the policy they have in Libya is successful because there's fewer deaths at sea. But that doesn't account for what's happening in Libya and the deaths in Libya and the deaths in the desert and the deaths in detention centers and the maltreatment in detention centers. And so that even that narrative, which the EU is trying to push forward as a success, is so fundamentally flawed and redrafted to, to suit the, the, the purposes. And so I think you need to question um, not that this is a success because fewer people are dying at sea. The question is, why are they, why are they not at sea? Um, and where are they instead? Because the, the flows have certainly not decreased. Um, and I think one of the final things is that there's always been this very, again, romantic idea that there's a pull of Europe. Like Europe is this free, incredible world and people want to go there. But actually, if you, if you look at the numbers, uh, pre this 2017 to now conflict, Libya was a final destination for most migrants. It, it's the push factor out of Libya that is creating a lot of this. And so it's, it's good to remember it's a lot, you know, when you, when you hear the stories from the EU to really question those narratives and what they, what they really are saying. Um, sorry. Yeah. I don't, I don't want this to become a conversation about just about this angle. So let's move on to other questions, but it is an important angle. Thank you. Um, so we've only got about 15 minutes left and I think there are, there are a couple of questions about kind of looking forward and, and prospects um, for Libya, particularly around peace building. So um, there's a comment here about you could kind of consider the Berlin conference not entirely successful. Um, and if these EU countries can't really agree among themselves, um, then are these conferences even worth having? Um, and, and what then are the prospects for um, any sort of national conference or national dialogue to get peace in Libya? So I think it's nice to kind of end or end, wrap up on this kind of looking forward. And again, I open it up to either of you to, to start commenting. Yeah, very briefly, I would tend to say that uh, one could argue that Western diplomacy in general uh, over the last several years has been based on a principle of appeasement uh, in the sense that there was a, a whole construct um, that was meant to enable the continuation of violence uh, while some actors were being included in, uh, in the political dialogue. And, uh, and I yet have to see this uh, demolished. This kind of mentality has to be uh, absolutely destroyed. And unfortunately, it hasn't. And um, the Berlin Initiative, as it was announced in early September 2019, was uh, basically marketed as uh, the exception to the rule, something fresh and something new. But during uh, the fall, the, the autumn of uh, 2019, when it, uh, it was basically diluted back into the same old mentality. And unfortunately, a lot of the apparent moments of panic of 2020 um, with regard to this idea that now Russia and Turkey have much more importance, which they do uh, compared to a year or two ago, that panic is not intense enough to actually uh, trigger a change in mentality on the part of the, uh, the Westerners. The Westerners, the reason I talk about them is because they have uh, a lot of uh, credibility, a lot of tools, a huge leg legacy in terms of influencing uh, international diplomacy in general. And, uh, and I don't feel uh, uh, that any threshold has really been crossed in terms of um, uh, triggering, as I said, a new kind of uh, way of, of, 
of worrying about Libya. The worry right now is not that genuine, uh, believe it or not. So uh, unless there's some kind of uh, selfishness that could uh, force those states, whether it's Germany or France or, or the US, to come back into the fold uh, in a more uh, serious manner in terms of actually uh, uh, conducting actions that cost them uh, and cost the, the various uh, states that they target, more importantly, uh, then we are still going to run into circles. I, I believe that Germany should uh, play uh, a bigger role in, in terms of European diplomacy. Unfortunately, uh, you know, with Merkel coming to the end of, its, uh, of, of, her, of her tenure, uh, we might see the opposite happening. And uh, unfortunately, France seems to um, uh, not value uh, genuine diplomacy. Uh, it looks for uh, announcement effects, for antagonism, for all kinds of rhetoric, not necessarily followed by an actual policy that costs France, even if it were more aggressive through an actual policy that could hurt France potentially, I would have more respect. Right now, what we're seeing is a lot of, a lot of rhetoric with the, the policy, the only policy in Libya being conducted by another state the one I mentioned earlier. So uh, I, I would need to see more sincerity on the part of the Europeans. Uh, even if Joe Biden is elected, I don't think we're gonna see like this spectacular, massive uh, spike in interest on the part of the Americans. So it's really about uh, what the Europeans are gonna do and I'm unfortunately I'm pessimistic. Um, yeah, I think the, the Berlin process seemed really promising when it, when it launched. For, for, two, for two things. One is that Germany taking the lead was welcomed, in my opinion, because it was one of the few countries that actually came to this with relatively clean hands um, and so could be in a position to, to really lead a process. The second point is that it was the first process that had within its ambit two features. One is that it was focusing on the international actors and the international actors alone, which was novel to kind of acknowledge that that was a thing and that should be looked at. And the second was actually was the only one that has ever referenced the need to look at human rights violations and international humanitarian law violations as, a, as an area, as in a process, as part of a process, which is revolutionary for Libya that you would think that that was part of it. What we then saw was that the process was, in my opinion, derailed and forced to play the game that every other process in Libya played because of events on the side with the bilateral meetings that were going on between Turkey and Russia, and then that forced them to kind of bring it a bit sooner and to, and, and, to put, and, and, and make it much more of a show than was, was I think, initially intended. Um, but the bit that, that, that concerns me the most is that we have a real opportunity still with the Berlin process because it still has this working group on human rights and international humanitarian law, which we do not have in any of the other mechanisms. Um, when that was announced, we were initially a bit wary that what we don't want is a tokenistic Okay, we've got, a, a, you know, we've got human rights, we've got IHL, tick, tick, that's resolved. It's a cute little basket. We talk amongst ourselves as experts in this field and we talk about how awful the situation is, but never does it impact on the other, on the other working groups. And that's the bit that we're, we need to kind of make sure works, which is to make sure that the actual, the other baskets or working groups, that the human rights working group has oversight of those or has influence on those. Because actually for me, what's most important is not to have a conversation amongst like-minded like people within a working group, but for the, you know, for the human rights people and, and the accountability people to have input and to have oversight of what the pol political group is doing, what the security group is doing, and what the economics 
group is doing because those are the ones that are going to write the script going forward to a degree. And if those are not done from a, a like an, a human rights based approach or a, or a, you know a, um, an international law approach, then we are going to be repeating the same thing we've repeated with every other internationally orchestrated process in Libya, where we appease, like Jalal says, but more than that, we um, we we empower the the um, aggressors and we empower the violators because we make their involvement a condition of the process instead of making their involvement conditional on their actions. And I think until there is an element of vetting involved on who sits at the table at the next political process in Libya, there is absolutely nothing but repetition that's going to happen. We'll get another Sparat by a different name, which is the last Libyan political agreement that we had, which empowers, enshrines violators and makes them part of the Libyan system and disenfranchises the Libyan public because it's done in a quite an opaque way. And um, one of the things we've seen now in the political process that's being run by the by Ansmal and um, which I was invited to join is, is, a, is, a, is a real concern because again, if you look at um, the composition there, we need to just make sure that there's a genuine vetting of who is there and that people who come there are, are held accountable and that there is as much of a stick as there is a carrot. At the moment, the entire Libyan process has been led by as opposed to let's actually make it work. And, and I think the tone is very different. Um, and until we can bravely say, you know what, if you're implicated in war crimes, if you're implicated in this, until you are cleared of those, your, your, your membership is paused on this front. Yes, that will give us far fewer people at the table because we have a lot of people implicated in a lot of things, but it might actually um, make it a more credible process. And so I think, you know, we need to really have a process which is built on conditionality. And for the UN, actually, to fulfill its mandate that there should be human rights mainstreamed into every part of its processes. At the moment, the five plus five that's being led by the UN, which is the security part or the political part, there is zero uh, involvement of human rights mainstreaming. Thank you. Um, we only have a few minutes left. So I think, unfortunately, we're not gonna be able to get through all of the questions because there, there really were. Um, a lot. Do either of our speakers, would either of you like to have some closing remarks? I mean, we've talked about a lot. Um, is there anything kind of take homes that you, that you want to, to present? Um, I would just say, uh, you know, obviously uh, go against the grain when it comes to um, this uh, air of inevitability that you get when you hear all those headlines uh, about the foreign states. Uh, I think that the wrong, you know, it's, we have to embrace the complexity of it. If we were to really look at the foreign dimension, there's a whole method to the mind, uh, to the to the madness. And uh, I I continue seeing a lot of articles that uh, use a, a blind spot to kind of uh, sweep some of the states under the rug. That is not acceptable. Mm -hmm. there's no need to simplify. We have to embrace the complexity if we were to study it, and we don't have to necessarily view it as a priority. I think uh, listening to Libyans, all Libyans, is very important. Uh, studying the local local reality that they experience every day is also very important. I and I view it as uh, most probably more important than whatever uh, the foreign capitals decide or do uh, within the next several months. And thank you very much for the opportunity once once again. Thank you. I would I would say. Three things very quickly. One is that is to build on Jalal's point, which is new 
Libya is a very nuanced situation and trying to simplify narratives for the sake of expediency or the sake of simplicity is, is, is where it got us to the situation we're in. There's a lot of history and there's a lot of present uh, in Libya that needs to be really understood. Um, and so for us to kind of really be looking ahead to what happens next, it's, it's very important not to, um, to get into the trees and not just look at the wood. Um, it's really important to really look at the nuance. The second point is uh, to think about language. I know that's come across in everything I've said. It's, there is a lot of power in words and how we reference people is really important. How we reference events is really important. How we reference the whole situation, whether that's referencing proxy wars, whether that's talking about things as an army when they're not an army. Um, all of those things normalize, um, the, normalize situations and give legitimacy to things that we might not want to be legitimizing. Um, the third point is, uh, is patience. It, you know, it takes a lot to undo things and it takes a lot to work things through. And one of the biggest problems with, with Libya is the, the diplomacy towards Libya and a lot of the rest, and, and, and obviously as a Libyan, I know the resistance of wanting to see the solution resolved, but they, you know, the, 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 I guess prioritizing expediency over efficiency has been one of the problems in Libya um, and, or efficacy as opposed to efficiency. So you know, trying to prioritize getting something done versus getting something done well has always been a problem we faced in this, in this process. And, you know, and accountability and justice is a really, really meticulous long-term process. And you will not get um, that Twitter justice satisfaction that you might get, um, you know, from, from ranting. And it takes, a lot, it takes a lot of effort to really try to construct systems that hold people accountable. And it's important that those systems are empowered, that those systems are well-resourced, and that those systems are given proper access and unhindered access. And by the systems, I mean, Things like the fact-finding mission that we have in Libya at the moment, it needs to be properly um, resourced. It needs to get access throughout the country to do its work, but also civil society. And I think we always have conversations like this, and I'm as guilty of it in this session as, I, as, 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 as the people I criticize, in that we forget the real price that's being paid. For a lot of these stories that come out, it's civil society actors putting their lives at risk and the enforced disappearances mention I made. Those are each one of those cases that we work on and that we document are individuals and families and people who have been disappeared for their work. And so it is absolutely vital that the, all those of civil society from the organizations and NGOs and lawyers and fixers for the journalists and all these people who help get the story of Libya out and help to get the violations out, their protection needs to be absolutely made priority and their work needs to be recognized. And I think we, we very seldomly talk about that in this, but they, are the, they have been the reason that Libya has moved forward and it's not the politicians. And so I think we need to continue crediting um, civil society in Libya with a lowercase civil society, so all across the board. Um, and we, you know, personally, I, I, I really am grateful for all the partners we have. But I think it's absolutely vital that we don't forget the real human price um, in this, and that when we talk about these situations, that's what we're talking about. Great, thank you. I think that's that's a good point to to end on um, this kind of not dehumanizing this conflict. Um, so uh, we have reached the end of the session, so we'll wrap up. Um, apologies that we couldn't get through all of the questions, there were a lot, but I'd like to thank our speakers for their presentations and, and their great insights in, into this topic. I'd also like to thank Nadine and the LSE Released Centre for organising this event. And lastly, I would like to thank all of you, the audience, for joining us today. Thanks very much. Thank you.